Index investing or passive investing has grown more popular with investors. Even Warren Buffett has the benefits of owning an entire index like the S&P 500 over the long term. An example of an index tracking ETF is BMO's S&P 500 Index ETF. It's the largest ETF in Canada that tracks this well-recognized and popular index. It provides exposure to the returns of the market cap weighted S&P 500 Index at a low cost the management fee of just 0.08%. This broad market ETF makes for an efficient building block in a portfolio, saving you time and effort while mitigating single stock risk. If you're looking for exposure to the largest and most liquid public companies in the United States, this ETF delivers an easy-to-use solution and instant diversification. Commissions and management fees and expenses all may be associated with investments in exchange-traded funds. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour episode 116. As always, joined by the three amigos, we got Rich Diaz of PGM Global and Keith Decker, Icecap Asset Management. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Boomer. Ho, ho, ho. How was Christmas, lads? How was it? Good, man. Did you get a new Patagonia sweater there? Yeah, I upgraded a few pieces, but my... Uh... A few pieces? Those aren't cheap. <laughs> well, what I upgraded on... I'm a big t-shirt guy, hey? Because you know, they fit they fit well. And uh, but Rich, my T-shirts, like once a year, I get this huge order from Old Navy. You know the five dollar themed mm-hmm. shirt you can get. Wow, you're right up my but, alley. Yeah, I know, man. Yeah. So for Christmas, I I probably got at least a dozen Old Navy T-shirts, nice. and I was like a kid on Christmas morning with them. Do you rock colors? It's different themes on them. Usually, it's like it's a mountain climbing theme or. You know, oh, you put prints on your ten. on your shirts. No, you oh, buy wow. them that way, Steve. You go to the website and you just no, no, no. buy you the. You gotta shirts. go like plain black or plain white. You can't mess it up. Just simple, and nobody even knows it's a five dollars shirt. It's just a black t shirt, clean, simple. And that boy. works for some people, like for the brooding guy in Kitslano. Maybe it works. I like a nice little print on on front. What about you, Rich? What What do you? Uh... When you think about that, what is your t-shirt strategy? Uh, my t-shirt strategy, it's kind of in between the two, two of you boys. I like a nice plain tee, but I like I like a t-shirt that has a message like say no to CBDC or crude oil is super useful. I like to have a little bit of a, a, an important message on my t-shirts every now and again. But you know... I I'm an, op- I'm an equal opportunity t-shirt guy, but uh, no, it was a good Christmas, ate way too much food. Uh, watched too much TV. It was lovely. I got a book, which I'm pretty happy about. So you got a book. Go. Got a couple books. Drum roll. What is it? Uh, it was called Normal People. It was like it won. Uh, it was like a shortlisted for a Booker Prize a little while ago. Okay. Uh, I also got some snazzy headphones. It was all right. It was a. It was a. It was a good haul this year. Good haul. There you go. Well, in case you didn't know, it's uh, it's a slow news week. We're talking about T-shirts here. That's right. Um. Yeah, but you know, if you're going on a date, Rich, you got to go like plain black T-shirt. No. Yeah, you think? Show my guns. I don't yeah. know. Like a slim fit. Uh, I like to be a little bit more smart casual on a date. On a date, but anyway, come on. <laughs> Enough of my dating life, <laughs> please. All right. Well, <laughs> relax. Of Rich's dating life, my T-shirt life, and by the way, Dude. to be clear, I do like the solid T. Because, you know, one of the greatest TV characters of all time always wore either all white or, or black T-shirt. Who's that? The Fonz? Yeah, the Fonz. Arthur Fonzarelli. Yeah. He was a good yeah. guy. He was Very good. predictable. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, so, we'll, uh, you know. This... You know predictable. Steve, what are you, speaking of predictable, what do you have lined up for us this week? Uh, we yeah. Well, we've got, uh, you know, again, it was a bit of a slower news week as as one should expect. But we wanted to keep keep the uh, consistency going with the Looney Hour here. We've yet to miss a week uh, over two years of recording this podcast. So we've got uh, 
Pierre Polyev put out a video called the Canada's Detonation video. We kind of want to unpack that, not so much from a political standpoint of, you know, we just want to discuss the validity of the video and because there's all these people going back and forth, uh, you know, as soon as the video dropped, of course, like this is the brilliant thing from a marketing perspective is you drop the video and then like people, whether they agree with it or disagree with it, they basically start discussing the video. So this guy gets free publicity. It's it's smart marketing um, because as soon as he drops it, right? Like Christopher Freeland goes to her Twitter, starts tweeting saying, oh, this is stupid video. We've, we've got no debt problem, blah, 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 blah. All these econs are out there on Twitter sharing their views of of the video, and and so we kind of wanted to you know share the loony hours perspective. Um, so we're gonna get into that. We've got some bond market volatility again as we head into the new year. Uh, we got some some important data on on gasoline for your vehicles as we discussed in the EV markets uh, last week and and uh, U.S. pending home sales things like that nature. But uh, just for for everyone's scheduling purposes. We won't be missing next week either. So next next week we'll be recording uh, just after the new year. We'll probably put to put together some predictions, maybe some outlook, some forecasts. We'll have we'll have some fun with it um, because I think really, you know, financial markets, Keith, what really aren't going to start getting interesting until what mid January. People will get yeah. back from holidays. I think Jan eighth week, like the second week, we'll. Maybe even on the second, you know, really figure out what's happening. Because the last two weeks, you know, it, you know, and people made a lot of money the last two weeks, and it's always, hey, this is awesome, and people are linear or thinking. Um, but but the liquidity and market moves really been amplified the last two weeks. So don't, I'm not trying to be positive or negative with it. It's just it is what it is, and we'll get a much better gauge for where the world is headed uh, into January as we yeah, go there. Basically, just saying, be careful about extrapolating at this point. So, liquid liquidity is also known as like volumes. So, um, literally, how many shares or bonds or how much currency is being tr is traded uh, on the exchanges every day, uh, and you can actually see how the volumes sort of dry dry up over this period because people are in food comas and on their couch watching football, or or maybe they're on the beach somewhere, or or yeah, so. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, so getting back full circle to Pierre Polyev's video again. So I think, I believe this is video one and supposedly what is a series to come. And so, you know, basically he put up this video. I, I think it's, what is it? Five, 10 minutes long. Uh, it's on Twitter. So go you can go and check it out there. Um, but basically, it's, sorry, it's 15 minutes long. And basically it talks about Canada's... Um, debt issues it says that you know canada is one of the largest um you know debt to gdp ratios in the g20 uh and he's basically warning that you know the excessive uh fiscal spending at the federal government level uh does risk a debt crisis and so that that's basically the premise of the video and he kind of walks through you know the bank of canada holding rates at zero and you know highlights household debt corporate debt public debt I think specifically he was really trying to obviously again from a political lens trying to frame this as the federal government is being reckless and they are spending a lot of money and that's creating it's creating excessive debt issues on top of the already high debt level. So Rich, I don't know if you want to unpack a little bit further. I've got my thoughts. I'm sure Keith's got his thoughts. So we'll kind of chime in here, but I know you want to take first swing at this. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I mean, in general, I think it was actually, I mean, there's a couple, I have loads of thoughts and we'll get back, well, I know we'll go back and forth, but I think in, in general, I don't think it was as big a criticism on the federal government as you might expect from the opposition party and someone who has been hypercritical. I think his general overriding point is that Canada has an incredible amount of debt and they do, and they have a high debt levels relative to their own economy. So he uses GDP and we'll unpack that number in a second. But he also uses relative to other countries. And I think it was actually, um, I'll get into the negatives in a second of what I thought. But I think just in general, I thought, I don't know how you guys felt, but it was just more basically an educational video of sort of what 
the negative impacts of having so much debt might be for an economy. And um, so that was just my first blush. I don't think it was necessarily a very, uh, it was a as critical, let's say, of the government as I think it could have been. I don't know, Steve, if you, so, if you thought that was right. Yeah, it's, it was kind of like almost like it was the same sort of uh, idea or framework of his housing video that he put out maybe three weeks ago, which he, again, also went viral and had, you know, mainstream media picking it up and discussing it. Um, and, you know, the housing one, for example, like someone that, like myself that watched it, I would agree that, you know, 85% of the video, I think, was very factual. And, you know, I would say well, it was maybe 15% of that video where I was like, well, I don't know if I agree with that. I think there's there's some more nuances here that are being left out or not explained in detail. And I think similar to his debt video this week, it was like, I would, I think, Rich, I think most of it was accurate. I think that coming into this, though, what I'll say is the private debt loads are are really ultimately the biggest precursor to financial crises. So there's a lot of good books out there that you can go read. Professor Steve Keen, who I've interviewed several times, has written a couple of good books on debt crises. I think Richard Warner is another one of them. Um, so there's, there's a couple of really good people that have, you know, uh, highlighted. He, he highlights uh, Kenneth Rogoff as well. Yeah. Uh, Reinhardt, Reinhardt and Rogoff. Yeah. This, this time is different. I mean, that's like kind of like the book on debt crises. So like, I mean, they're kind of the experts on, on these. And, you know, they'll, if you read that book, it will tell you that most debt crises are done to the private sector. Right. So, and we've had, incredible buildups in household debt, particularly in Canada, right? And that's really based on excessive borrowing uh, against real estate, mm -hmm. right? And so because in 2008, 2009, Canadian households did not delever their balance sheets like, you know, the, for example, the US did. And so household debt to GDP just kind of continued to grow and has continued to grow as house prices have grown. Yeah. Um. So there's one, it's funny because like there was an interesting, I saw one of the economists and I actually kind of like this economist, but this is where I think like the mainstream kind of gets it wrong, Keith, is they say, oh, well, household debt to GDP. Yeah, it's really, really high in Canada. It's, I think it's, I think it's like second worst in the G20. It's really high. Um, but they say, well, but you got to look course, at the assets. But, yeah. But it's kind of a, kind of a circular problem is it not i mean the more the more that you can borrow the more you sort of expand the asset price right it's like yes household debt is going up so house prices are going up along with it but it, it's that's the why prices are going up is because you can borrow right if you can if you can only borrow three times your income it's probably not going to go up as much as if you can borrow seven times your income so of course you know uh, your asset's going to go up if everyone starts borrowing seven times their income. But Keith, I don't know if you have any initial thoughts. Uh, so first of all, for this conversation, I think everyone involved with it, just remove your political lens or bias or, or whatever, right? That's what you have to do. Because everything's just been so uh, magnified these days. You know, you know, he, you know, we know why this has come out. I mean, it's, it is from a political perspective. And then the immediate response to it is extremely political as well. So what we uh, strongly suggest everyone, just eliminate that view. Instead, look at it as this is such an incredibly important conversation for not only for Canadians to have, but for the Europeans to have, the Americans, the Japanese, the Chinese. Everyone needs to have this conversation. And it can only start from from the from the ground up. So something like you know where we're we're discussing on the podcast, and maybe families are going to be talking about it over lunch or dinner or whatever you know whatever they're doing. Um, so that's that's the the first thing with this, and that's that's the that's actually good news because most of these crises, people only realize it was a crisis or it was a problem with hindsight. You know after it's happened. So again, uh, I think people know my view on this. I've been talking about it for a while. And uh, I thought the the video hit on a, a number of really good points. And the main one specifically, uh, you know, people have had private conversations with me 
Dana, I'll, I'll frequently talk the, or explain the narrative with interest rates and the movement in rates. And, you know, you most frequently in this video, uh, they reference 1981 or 82 when rates peaked, then they kept going down that allowed debt to accumulate. So, uh, you know, we were joking beforehand, three of us about, you know, what, what, what constitutes experience in the economic and investment world these days? You know, we'll joke, people say, oh, they have 10 years experience or 15 years experience. And even if you have 15 years experience today, it brings you back to the housing crisis, like 08, 09. But we, again, we've had this 40-year period with rates always going lower and lower and lower. And Steve, what has that enabled household and governments to do? Borrow lots of money. Borrow, baby. Borrow, baby, borrow. That's that's what it is. So that's so my, the, the first, my, my first thoughts on this is, it's a conversation we should all have, and it's a positive conversation. And then if, if anyone listening to this who's in the power to get this going, again, it's just we brought this up before and it's 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 shocking and embarrassing. Our education system is financially illiterate. Financial literacy has to start in primary and go through high school, middle school, senior school, universities, and, and everything. And then like, we're still going to hit these cycles along the way, but at least we're going to have, it take a generation to do this, but at least more and more people will be aware of what debt is. And see, because you mentioned the debt, as, you know, net debt and net assets and everything, and you're absolutely right. You know, by borrowing more, the assets can rise if you get appreciation in that asset. The big question is, if the asset gets chopped in half, oh, then that's when the debt bubble breaks. Well, that's the yeah, initial... And- like we already know it in the housing sector, right? It's like, you know, okay, well, I can tell you one of maybe, maybe one of the most common scenarios here. This is like everyday life. Um, you know, I'm in particular in Vancouver and Toronto where values have gone up tremendously over the last 10 years. So one of the most common things was, you know, you're entering the housing market, you're on the housing ladder, you would buy, let's say a condo, you'd live in it for five, six years. And then when you're ready to upsize to a house, cause your family's growing, you know, you'd sell the condo, you'd maybe have a little bit of equity gain and you'd upsize to your house. Uh, what we've seen over the last like 10 plus years is people have said, well, you know, a condo I bought has doubled. So I, I, I don't, want to, or need to sell it to climb the ladder. Why don't I just refinance it? Take a couple hundred thousand dollars of equity out of it, right? It's free money, basically. It's house money. And I'll use that refinance, that equity to as my down payment to to buy the house that I want to move into. So um people that otherwise maybe wouldn't have become landlords have become landlords because there's been this massive price growth. And again, that's only largely, I would say, been a- been enabled through low interest rates. Um, which have, have allowed people to borrow more money, house prices to go up and to obviously be able to refinance. Like you're probably not doing that. I can tell you people aren't doing that, certainly not to that extent today when you're borrowing mortgage rates at say 6% as opposed to two. So, and, and I think like the household debt picture, uh, I used to talk about this a lot uh, on my real estate blog when you know I first started sort of going more public. Well, in 2016 was really about like Canada's household debt problem. And everyone just like, it's an interesting topic of conversation, but people largely, in my experience, have ignored it because it's been 40 years of, or 35 years or whatever, of an up market in Canadian housing. And, you know, the debt bubbles sort of been brewing and household debt to GDP continues to kind of go up and up and up, but like nothing has blown up and it's been you know, decades, right? So people don't really think about it. They don't really perceive the risks. Um, but it doesn't mean the risks, in my opinion, have gone away. It's still it's still there. It's still a problem. So bringing, bringing sort of what both, both, both you guys are talking about is like one is, is sort of that refinancing piece. And that refinancing piece works when two things are present is when house prices are going up. So you've got sort of froth. You've got the speculative um, fervor. You've got sort of demand or supply demand mismatch. And you've got interest rates that are falling or negative. So there are different formulas for how you might calculate sort of um, the intrinsic value or the value of a particular asset. And usually you do sort of future cash flows divided by your discount rate with some kind of adjustment for time um, and the period over which you might be paying that, that, that payment. 
And so the, the lower that your discount rate goes, you know, you've got your numerator and denominator, the lower that denominator goes, the higher your intrinsic value goes. So you got the stuff on the left and the stuff on the right of the equation. And now it sounds a bit boring, but that is fundamentally what we are, are dealing with. And so to bring it towards, to, to sort of wrap it into what Keith was saying is like, when that discount rate is continually going down, or um, as you guys have heard me say for a long time, was negative in real terms, which is a crime against you know financial and humanity. When that R, so that R piece, your discount rate stops falling and starts rising, your intrinsic, just mathematically, even though your future cash flows, right, your numerator is okay. If your denominator starts rising, that's on this side of the equation, your intrinsic value will all things being equal, start to fall. And so that's why I push back against this sort of debt versus assets piece. You know, yes, our debt, you know, the, one of the criticisms of, of the video um, is, you know, oh yeah, but our debt, our assets are obviously much, much higher. And it's like, yes, our assets are high because our interest rates have been very, very low, right? That's just the, that's literally like a kind of a tautology in a sense. And so if you have a situation where our interest rates cannot decline anymore, or your future cash flows are stagnant, right? So you got your numerator, denominator, then your asset piece is going to start either be stagnant or fall, but the nominal value of your debt remains. And so you can have a situation where you, you your assets aren't necessarily, they're not worth what you, you think they're paid for. And we know this is, we, we see examples of this all the time. Think of commercial real estate, where you thought your there was an asset that was just sold 10 years ago, asset was sold $280 odd billion, and it was just sold to a, to a real estate company out of the UK for $26 billion. So you have a situation where sometimes you do have asset impairments, and yet you still need to pay for that debt. And this reminds us, of course, of a conversation we've talked about balance sheet recessions, but maybe we'll get into that. Creating visual content is an essential part of what I do, but the creative process hasn't always been easy. Here at the Lunia, we have to create cover art, social media posts, and images for our website. That normally requires an expensive full-time graphic designer. However, that's all been made possible using Canva. Canva for Teams is a design platform that makes it easy for anyone to create stunning content in any format, from social media posts to videos, presentations, websites, and marketing materials for our live events. Ever since I found Canva for Teams, it's been easy to collaborate and design with the team, which makes the whole process so much more creative and fun. Using Canva Teams, Keith, Rich, and I can collaborate on designs, providing seamless feedback and ensuring our brand stays consistent using custom brand kits. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash loonyhour. That's canva.me slash loonyhour for a free 45-day extended trial canva.me slash There's some other good charts out there. Uh, you know, Ben Rabideau has been one of the better ones of putting this out, I think consistently every single year, uh, which is really a chart on the the renewal, um, the gap, the renewal gap, mm -hmm. he calls it yeah. basically, which just shows like, okay, Canadians that are, you know, borrowing on a five-year fixed mortgage, um, you know, this, this year, what are most Canadians going to renew at? Is it higher or lower? And it's been like lower for like, 20 or 30 years and like every time it kind of was like higher it would be higher for like maybe it'd be a little bit higher for a year and then it would drop back down so we're going to get to this a better understanding not only 2023 was it was a higher renewal gap 2024 is going to be higher and we'll see where 2025 is so i think canadians are in for a bit of a challenge here uh over the next year or two but i think the one thing that i wanted to point out so chris of freeland again just to keith's point try to keep your political biases out of this to the best of your ability is, you know, so she commented on the video and she said, you know, um, our responsible economic plan allows us to make crucial investments in Canadians backed by a triple a credit rating and the lowest debt to GDP ratio in the G seven. Um, and so she basically is saying this video is, um, fake news or I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But um, so she's talking about lowest debt to GDP ratio in the G7. Um, I'm assuming that she's discussing or pointing to public debt. She's talking about debt. federal. She's talking about federal government debt. Yes. Which is a extreme, extreme, like she's that's extremely misleading. Because no one, and so you say, Rich, why could you be so you know punchy about this? It's because when you Google again, don't take my word for it. When you Google general government debt, the first one of the first two links that will come up is the IMF, and the IMF calculates all this stuff, and it's always general government debt. 
And so what that means is they don't you don't just you're not allowed to just parse out local stuff or state or whatever provincial or municipal. They aggregate that debt and they call it general government debt. And for Canada, general government debt is very, very, very high. And we know this. Um, and so that's why it's very misleading when she says, oh, Canada's government debt is the lowest in the G7. First of all, we know that the G7 comparison is absolutely bogus. We've talked about that before. But more importantly, is that general government piece. So Canada's debt to GDP is in the hundreds. Again, it depends on who you're looking, uh, how you calculate or when. 100, 105% debt to GDP. And it is um, as high as anyone in the G7 and one of the highest in the OECD. Sorry, Steve. I'm assuming that she's pointing that out because that, that number that she's highlighting is excluding provincial debt. Yeah, but she's saying it because it's low. <laughs> if you trust me, if it was the other way around or something, she would definitely, you know, um, yeah, that you know that that's that's the point, right? She. It's so clear. let's let's bring the. I mean, it's a really good point, and um, you know, that's the response. Again, from a political perspective, they have to come out with something like that. I mean, we're at the end of an election cycle almost, so that would be expect it um but again we keep going back to what's important here maybe three of us would do our own little straw poll i guess you call it or sure we do hands up how's that so everyone might not see how steve votes first of all is this a problem like hands up is this a serious problem or is it just you know again like part of the election cycle conversation so hands up if you think it is a serious problem if government, if debt in full stop is a problem, correct. Yes, I, I my yeah. hand is up. Yeah. Okay. So that's three. Actually, <laughs> Rich voted twice. Everyone, you put two <laughs> hands up. So we got four, four votes for this being a serious problem. So I, I think next, then you know the. I think most people listening to this, the you know the question is, okay, hey, when does this happen, right? And you know the the shorter answer is, you know, we don't know. We don't you know. Steve Steve was looking at this back in 2015. And a lot could of easily go another could easily go another ten years easily. I agree. I, I think I think that's exaggerating it a little bit. No, but, but Steve's point is <laughs> fair, which is no. Steve's point is maybe not ten, but I think Steve's point, if I may, is fair in the sense that you know people have been talking about the sovereign debt problem for a number of years, and we have yet to feel any kind of pain. And I think the mistake that people who would dismiss this as a point of worthy discussion is that just because we haven't felt the pain doesn't mean it's not a real problem. Can, so my, can push, I... well, my pushback with that view is that it, it hasn't happened yet because we were at zero rates with QE for everyone around the world for over a decade. And really, we've had, what, 18 months now of yeah, maybe, yield curve yeah. stress? So I think that's the no, period a, we're looking at. Do you know what I mean? So 18 months, that's what we should now, maybe it's 22 months, right? When, when do rates start going up? No, I think it's a very yeah. fair point. It's a very yeah. fair point. Yeah, and like back to my, you know, observation again, you know, people say, oh, I've been around for 10 years. I know everything. And like, you know, I'm, I'm a boomer. I've been around for a long time and I haven't seen all the bad stuff that was happening when rates were going higher because, you know, nobody's working anymore that, that saw that. So that's why we have the financial historians out there. But again, we've had this 18, 22, 24 month period where it's it's becoming a real struggle here. So the question is, hey, is it, is it a debt bomb? And based on the amount of debt that's out there, it is a bomb. And then the next question is, how long is the fuse and will it det detonate or will it be you know one of those old black and white movies where everyone's stomping on the fuse trying to get it out and... Actually, no, it's the animated ones for Disney. Then at the very end, you know, somebody's used a pair of scissors and cut it. Yeah. You How do we cut call it? it? We call it a damp squib. A damp squid. Do you know what a damp squib is? A damp squib what is, is when you have a, a squib is like, you know, it's like a, when you're trying to light a bomb and you have like the the little piece that's like the, the like blow the like uh, that sets off the fuse to blow up the bomb. It's called a squib. And if you have a damp squib, it means the bomb doesn't go off. The fuse goes all the way to the end, and it goes, and it pizzles out. <laughs> Maybe go. that's what we. I think that's what you call it. That's called a debt restructuring, though. If you think about it, so the damp squib is that what we're going to yeah, call it? Yeah, with a B. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, but the other thing people are wanting to know, like, okay, what do you do? How do you protect yourself during this if it's going to happen? 
or if the probability, like what, so I have in my mind, like what are you going to look for first to see if it's accelerating? Or as Steve said, maybe it just it just hangs out for a lot longer. What, what are and your I, thoughts, Steve? Well, I mean, I think like, just reading some of the rebuttals online, again, not like, and I'm talking like the rebuttals from mostly a lot of them journalists, uh, some of them, economists and and mostly like you know university type economists i'm not talking like hey economists i work at a wall street bank i'm looking at financial markets every day i'm talking about just like the you know the other type of economists and and you mean you mean podcasters yeah 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 exactly um and the, the rebuttal right now, and it's like, oh, man, like this is hard to read, is, oh, well, again, we've got a AAA sovereign rating, AAA credit rating. That's and, a bullshit answer. Carry on. <laughs> and, and number two, number two is if we had a debt problem, if Canada really, you know, if the world was really concerned about Canada's debt problem, you know, our yields, our bond yields wouldn't be trading you know, neck and neck with the U.S. You know, we would just, yeah, we'd be paying up the nose to borrow money, and and we're not, so there's no problem. Another very very superficial rebuttal. So the first rebuttal was our credit rating is AAA rating, triple rated. I would submit to you the movie The Big Short, where all that MBS was AAA rated, and then the second rebuttal is that the spreads are tight, and that. You know, okay, again, a very um, superficial rebuttal. In 2007, the Italian to German 10 year bond yield spread was 25 basis points, and within three years, it was 500. So, just, you know. So, Rich is right. Let's think, you know, most people remember, let's just call it the big short. That's what everyone has in, in their mind. And with hindsight, it was incredibly obvious, very likely this event would happen. Right, that's what most people now would say. Yeah, of course, everyone saw it coming. If that's the case, then why didn't markets move in 07 or 06? Or why did it only start in like in Jan or February 08? I think when when Bear Stearns right. had the problem. But you know what I mean? Like, so for this, first of all, credit ratings. It's it's either. Are you allowed to say they're bought and paid for? Can you say that, Rich? Yeah, of course. That's what they are. They are bought okay. and paid for. They're not. They're, they're not to be taken seriously. Yet. But it, it, they're not proactive with with things, right? They're, they're really it's 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 a result of something going on, and and they're relative and everything. And the same thing with the bond market. So a bond market is only going to start to react, you know, is 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 if you can smell it, and like there's fire coming out of the house, like uh oh, now we got to go. And and you know, as Steve, as you pointed out. But that's not happening right now. It's just the conditions are there for potentially you know, the fire to start. So with those rebuttals, you know, I'm telling you that the credit rating is going to be the last thing to change. So don't manage your wealth by relying on S&P or Moody's or God forbid, the, the Dominion bond rating service or Fitch. I think I got four of them, right? Yeah. But uh, it, again, you have to watch the market for, for where they're going. I mean, watch the big short. The lady at uh, is it Moody's? They asked why she hasn't remarked the uh, mortgage-backed securities, or is it? It's kind of, yeah, it was kind of funny because then she had like eye surgery, so she had the big dark glasses on and everything. And but that's Hollywood, right? That's Hollywood. Um, so what the first thing that we need to look for here? Hey, is this happening? So you have financial market data, and like we talk about that every week, right? Like it's you know, Rich gets excited about it when. You know, maybe his date doesn't, but you got to look for those things. Uh, well, you have to answer yourself this, okay? You, first of all, I'll make a statement, and I know I'm 100% correct. And you guys can tell me, yeah, you're not totally correct. Governments will always be reactive to this event. They, by definition, they cannot be proactive. So let's just say the Canadian government, they want to be proactive because, hey, we have this enormous debt problem and everything. They have to lay off half the uh, government workforce, you know, raise taxes, stop spending, and and all that. And that ain't going to happen in a normal cycle. It's clearly not going to happen in the year before the investment story, the election cycle is coming up. 
So next, you always say, okay, well, there's a market that's smarter than everyone else, and that's the private sector. So you have to start watching, are there layoffs or hirings? Like, what's happening? So that's why the jobs number is so important. You know, we, we look at it every month. And and even those numbers, you know, there, a lot of them are smooth or seasonally adjusted. Is that the household level, you know, or at the establishment level? But you got to start looking for layoffs, and specifically in the financial sector. Because those rich, those are the guys that can smell it. They can smell it coming. And there's already been a lot of layoffs in the financial sector coming up. So as we go into 24 for everyone, just, just start reading the papers, you know, listening to the news and things and say, okay, are, are big companies hiring or firing? What are they doing? Because they will get lean and mean before governments and before households, right? So governments are the last ones to do it, but watch the private sector first. Yeah. So Keith, your point, uh, global banks, this is from the Financial Post, global banks eliminated more than 60,000 jobs in 2023, marking one of the heaviest years for cuts since the financial crisis uh, and reversing much of their hiring uh, that emerged uh, from the pandemic. So but there's, can I just talk about some other worthy criticisms that I think were missed? of the of that no because i think that that that, this is that tells you that these people in my view are political and not being analytical about um sort of their criticisms in pierre polyev's thing number one i think the number is (laughs) wrong so the first line of the whole video he says 350 times sorry 3.5 times gdp and i think he's repeated again at one point says the 350 percent of gdp i think that number is too high (laughs) and that's a nitpicking so forgive me but the numbers matter the bis has it about 307 and the imf is much much closer to that 300 mark now however that is absolutely one of the higher numbers uh, higher figures in the world. I think you have places like Hong Kong, which is sort of a financial anomaly. You have a Singapore's, and then you have Japan, which is its own thing. So you're you're not an exactly great company, but that would be sort of one one of my criticisms. And the other two is I think that that they sort of missed is like, you know, when you have population growth three percent a year, if you just continue to have that kind of out, like insane population growth, and of course the inflation that comes along with it, what you effectively have is nominal GDP growth that is sort of much higher than you have had over the last several years. And you can have a situation where because you have a little bit of nominal GDP growth, again, it's the whole numerator versus denominator thing, you have, so it's, you know, debt to GDP. Well, if your nominal GDP starts rising, again, because of inflation, I'm not saying that's good for people, I'm just saying that's the reality of it, then you have a situation where those debt numbers aren't as bad as they might seem at first blush. So those are two to my sort of criticisms that you I think that it would be worthy right off the top. So yeah. I want to jump ahead of Steve, it seems Go like. Go ahead, sort far of. away. Yeah? Okay. Seniority. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Uh, we do have to come back and talk about the Canadian-specific debt experience we had in the early O's. I'm going to say it was 02 to 04. I'm just guessing the the, the, the time frame here by a year or two. Um, we have to do that. And then the other thing to consider on, on top of all this as well, uh, you know, something we talk about all, a lot is that this is not a Canadian-specific story. Right. You, you just touched on it then, Rich. And this is a global problem. The entire world has binged off a 40-year cycle of rates going lower and lower and lower, flatline zero, negative, QE, and, and all that. So it, it, again, like it, this Canadian challenge that we could have coming up, it's likely it could be ignited by someone outside of Canada. And then much like the Asian currency crisis back in, in 97, 98, you know, it, it'll then come ashore here. So let, don't again, don't think it's Canadian specific, because if it's just a Canadian problem, um, we could still experience it. And if we do, it'll be a short lived experience. Because of global trade, you know, you get a weaker currency, you sell stuff and you recover from it. And foreign investors, you know, they're not hurting. Yeah, absolutely. Let's invest, you know, 500 million in like a new EV plant in Windsor yeah. or, or something like that. Um, but do you see what I mean, though? If it's just a Canadian problem, if it happens, it'll be short-lived. The challenge today is that this is largely a global problem. 
So therefore, it could turn into something you know that that's a little bit longer than than what we would want to have. Uh, okay, Steve, I'll give you eighteen seconds before we come back to the. That's all I need. I think that it kind of comes to this point, though, again, that I'm seeing online is that, you know, bond yields are once again falling, um, showing that, okay, you know, government spending, the, the bond markets are seemingly okay once again with this government spending. And I just think it risks the potential for the bond vigilantes to come back and enforce austerity on these governments, right? I mean... But the question is, see, but are, are long yields coming down because people have confidence in bonds? Or is it, are long yields coming down because they're saying, oh man, a recession coming? But it's just a normal cycle. That's totally. why long yields. And then if it turns into something that's uglier, you know, then they, they shoot back up, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that... I It just feels like we haven't really... It hasn't really sunk in, right? It's just like we just had a 40-year high in inflation, and people are saying, well, it wasn't, you know, it, you know, this this is one side of the argument. It's not my view, but you hear one side of the argument saying, well, it was just a supply chain issue. It was a one-time thing. You know, it really didn't have much to do with the government spending or the deficits, you know, th that spending and deficits, they were much needed because we were in a crisis. We were fighting a, a war against the virus and it, it needed to be done. And as we can see now, inflation is back. It's coming back down. It's going to be at target sometime in 2024. And, and there's nothing to worry about in government's Again, just, that's one side of the argument that I, I I see frequently on Twitter from I would say people that have decent sized followings and people are, where I get concerned is the general public gobbles this stuff up because they don't know any better and they just think that hey you know uh, free childcare free dental care it feels good. It's helping my cost of living. It helped. It's helping me live my life. But I would argue there's not really such thing as, a, as as anything that's free. You know, the money has to come from somewhere. Of course, there's no free lunch. I mean, that's that's ultimately. I think so. Can I just touch on some positives, which is you know sort of bringing sort of again what you guys are both talking about. One is like you know in a way that Keith's point about how the whole world sort of sort of dealing with this problem hides Canada's bad behavior. And I think that that's like one of the sort of it's like, you know, if you're all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do it, too? It's like that's a really terrible excuse and bad way to run a country just because your your colleagues are doing something very stupid doesn't give it does not that that's a terrible logical reasoning for why you should behave badly. And I think like like or, like him or hate him. I think the fact that Pear Polyev is is sort of bringing this conversation forward and I would argue trusting his audience, you know what I mean? Like, despite my nitpicking on sort of things here and there in the video, I think he, what he's doing is effectively saying this is a difficult conversation to have. This is a conversation we must have. And I'm going to trust the constituents to have a think about this difficult topic. And I think that that's and then what I really didn't like from the responses was instead of saying, I mean, I would never imagine anybody in political sphere to be magnanimous, but to just say like, okay, you're right. Let you know what this is a difficult situation. This is a difficult subject. We don't agree with Pierre Polyev on how we should solve the debt crisis, but it certainly is one. They just say, oh no, it's not an issue. I mean, that's just bullshit. It is. It is. You can't describe that. I don't know, Keith. Maybe I'm too naive, but I was hoping for better. Uh, no, I think you're. You you are absolutely correct and people will they, again we, we move this the world has just become so political like red extremes and, and everything like even at t-shirts for god's sakes steve you can wear a printed shirt sometimes like, it doesn't matter i only you wear printed t-shirts at the looney hour event <laughs> oh my god you did remember that one that gentleman from winnipeg he dropped us off in, at the, the event a year ago Twinkie shirt yeah, yeah, that was really that was really nice. I, I love that shirt. Uh, but again, like people will say, "Well, what's the solution?" You know, you don't want to hear what the solution is. So the solution is so. Let's let's jump back. You know, twenty years ago when Canada last had this you know debt problem, and you know, and and again, like back then the liberals were in power in Canada. Uh, they were in power after it broke. And the way people recognized you know, it, it broke because the Canadian dollar was headed to 50 cents in a hurry. 
it was you know the, the Canadian this dollar. Was, this was a Jean rich. Chrétien. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and Paul Martin you know, was would have would have been involved with helping it. And they say, you know what, we need to make some changes here. So they dramatically reduce spending. You know, they raise taxes. You know, all, all this austerity stuff that you read about and everything. And it was the Liberals. They did it. So again, this is a compliment, you know, for that side. People think we only lean one way. That, that's that's not true. Uh, they 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 forced Canada to take the medicine that they had to, and it worked. Okay, it worked back then, largely because the rest of the world was okay and was helping to go along with it. So the solution today. You know, and again, I always laugh at this. I think you mentioned this before, Rich, and I always say, no, you're not right. It doesn't work this way. Um, you know, one, you know, academic theory with, with all this debt problem is that, oh, you can inflate your way out of it. That's BS, right? We That's disagree on that. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, I disagree with your disagreement. <laughs> That's a positive thing. Two disagreements. That doesn't mean it. Anyway, keep going. Keep going. You're, how about this? You're stupid. How's that? The, uh, <laughs> but uh, the reason I disagree with that thinking is, is because if you're able to inflate your way out out of of, of a debt problem, it, it would have happened already. You know, central banks try to create inflation for over a decade with zero, near zero, and QE and everything. You know, they weren't able to do it, and then they do the very thing that caused inflation. They weren't expecting it to happen. You know, the whole transitory talk. No. So, you know, then by, by default, the only way to deal with this is that you're proactive. So here's a suggestion for every everyone in, in Ottawa. And I, I'm going to be surprised if it happens. How about someone stand up on, on the floor and say, you know what? We have this problem. Everyone agrees with it. Uh, how about everyone here take a 25% pay cut? Same with our staffers and, and all that. We're going to oh, take on, the lead. That's... Hey, why not? Why not? You want to be a leader for your country? You you do something like that, right? Then no, it's it, virtue it's, signaling. It's the same reason why Canada cutting its emissions is bogus because it doesn't. It's just that's like a virtual, no, it's a that, superficial gesture. No, that's not. So cutting cutting emissions, no one is taking a penalty for that. Anyways, I don't want right? to get this distracted. I think that's a superficial yeah. thing. No, but again, you gotta. Otherwise, it's say let's be dramatic, you know, like you know, Vivek Ramaswamy. You know, everyone with their sin number ending in an odd number works for the <laughs> government. Your job is gone. We're going to cut spending by fifty percent. Like you do all these things, which will bring down your debt and everything, and then you know you deal with it that way. Or you get very creative and you do a, you know a debt for equity swap. And I don't think anyone is smart enough to put that together. So by default, you know, we go back to the uh, what this the swampy. Clicker? What did you call it? <laughs> Damp squib. <laughs> <Sand squib. laughs> a swampy clicker is way better. That's what we need. But there's, but there's other. I mean, sorry, just ski before you. But there's other ways that. So one of the things you meant you failed to mention, which I think is is actually kind of delicious in a sense because it's sort of against everything the Liberal Party stands for, is one of the reasons why Canada was able to lower its debt to GDP ratio. Do you want to take a wild guess what also happened at the exact same time that they started doing it? We had a massive commodity bubble. So from 2000 to 2008, commodity prices soared, all of them, basically all of them, maybe not all of them, but you know what I mean. And oil, for example, went up to $140, $120 a barrel. Canada is one of the largest producers of oil. Mind you, at that time, it was only producing maybe half as much as what we are now. But it, it, that massive injection of foreign um, capital in the form of investment, but also literally just profits and hard currency and taxes and, and royalties, et cetera, allowed Canada to... So that helped Canada fill its coffers. And so the irony right now is you have a situation where there's massive debts, both of the government side and the and the and the private side. We have very, very bad productivity growth as a function of our housing bubble and it's it's bust. And the government of Canada is trying to destroy the one piece of the economy that continues to basically sustain this sort of fantasy that we are living in, which is the energy sector. And we've talked about this before. So I just think that the parallels, Keith, I think are really sort of interesting. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's a the good spot to kind of clean it up. But yeah, to your point, I mean, in terms of like austerity and cutting things, the reality is, is, is you know, you're effectively partnered with Jagmeet Singh of the NDP. I mean, he's not going to be, I would argue that he's basically calling the final shots and he's certainly not going to be saying, yeah, you know what, now's the time for for cutting jobs and cutting social programs. Um, so that's just never going to happen. And, you know, we'll see what happens um, with the bond market and what happens with the global economy over the next, you know, 18 to 24 months. Cause I think that's really going to be the telltale is uh, you know, I think Keith, again, I'm kind of curious your point, but I think the only way to really enforce austerity on, on Canada here is either going to be through, you know, the currency or through the bond market, like the, the the market is going to enforce austerity. It's not going to be the government willingly raising their hand saying, let's be proactive. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And um, so that's why, you know, you often hear the expression, you know, sometimes you just have to crash and burn, you know, you, you go through it. But let's have a real quick go around. If we have 30, 40 seconds. How, Rich, how do we inflate the economy? to get out of that debt problem. I just want to go through the, I think people, yeah, I think people want to hear that conversation because we hear it all the time. Inflate the debt away. And I'm saying, Hey, it's not going to work. And you're saying, Hey, maybe it might work. So let's, let's talk through that based on today's remember. And inflation comes from two ways. Well, three ways, you know, it can come from, you know, because of the currency or by massive increase in demand or a massive decrease in supply. We just went through the, you know, the, the holy grail where supply fell and demand increased, right? So how do we create this really strong economic growth where central banks are comfortable with it so that we're able to produce, we have more, you know, global production, global GDP and everything. So people make more and able to pay down the debt. How do we, I don't know how we do it. If well, this I, is I don't care about if we're talking about Canada specifically, and we're talking about nominal GDP growth, because that's what this debt is compared to. When you say debt to GDP, it's not debt to real GDP. It's debt to nominal GDP, right? So if your debt level is a certain level and your nominal GDP, well, how would you increase your nominal GDP? Well, you have inflation. And I'll, let's say I'll just concede to you, even though I think you're wrong. I'll concede to you that inflation is at 2%. If you have population growth at 3%, all of a sudden your nominal GDP growth is at 2 And that's before you get, a, get, get out of bed. Leave aside any kind of productivity growth. So let's just say you have terrible productivity growth at 1%. So now you're at nominal GDP growth of 3%. Sorry, sorry, uh, sorry, sorry, six percent, right? So you got three percent population. Now, that, now remember those that three percent population growth is an outrageously high number. That's a forty year high. Two percent nominal it, GDP plus three percent population growth, five percent nominal GDP. Right. So if you have a nominal GDP growth, so inflation plus population growth equals, let's say, five or six, you have nominal GDP growth of six percent. That can deal with a lot of debt problems. Now you might not like it. Now it might not certainly won't be good for your social, the social cohesion of your economy. It certainly won't be good for um, the people at the lowest end of the income spectrum, but you want to deal with debt. You can, that is one way that you can, to me, that is very, that is not at all sort of an, um, like a blue sky thinking that we're seeing that happen right now. Yeah. I mean, that's what people in the first two rows of the classroom think about <laughs> let's go to the, let's go to the what do you back mean? That's, of the... But that's happening right now but that's happening right now yeah but it's not happening so it is happening. Mean? we have three percent we have three percent population growth and we have four percent and we have four percent inflation but that we're talking about a video we're talking about and a debt, video with debt yeah, is debt, out of but, control right but so debt again, to GDP how is we... flat over the last few years that's that's yeah so how do we go into this this coming year we continue with two three percent population growth what happens with housing steve on your side i'm not saying it's good if you continue to get a million people a year into the country yeah i think that you probably get what we continue to see which is rents are incredibly sticky um arguably i would say in my opinion they'll still be inflating higher 
Um, and I think real, I think house prices, at least on a nominal basis, are flat or even up. Right. Yeah. I mean, so everyone's like, with- hey, right. I mean, like house prices nationally over the last, let's say, 18 months, two years, basically, since rates started going up. I mean, they're, they're down like maybe at most 10%. That's pretty crazy. It, that's, considering that's my point. So if mortgage housing, rates have tripled. Yeah. So housing, you know, flies higher and education, you know, decreases in, in quality. Same with healthcare and, you know, all the EV plants and, and all that stuff. <laughs> Again, I like the solution that you just, you, you just described. I think we've already been trying that. And maybe that's why population growth has been so strong in, in the Western world. Maybe they know this already, right? That's where they're headed. Well, well sorry, sir. I'm interrupting, you, but I'm, don't confuse me giving you. I think it's a. I think it's a horrifically cynical way to solve this problem. Let's be very clear. I just you asked me for a solution, and I presented one. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's the, it's the rich solution. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, come up with a reason why this, you know, let's inflate the dead away story. It's there, uh, but you know, like sometimes we'll joke that, hey, like who's 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 the captain of the of this ship in out of Ottawa and elsewhere and maybe there is maybe they do have this global plan put in place so that you know oh you God. but you grow it with you know what population growth and you know we'll have a few fires pop up you know we, we'll deal with it but I think though you we still come back to this you know this so-called um you know debt crisis that we are in and and again, my view is that I've always heard we're going to inflate the debt problem away, and it's never happened. It it it's never happened. So I'm going to be shocked that you know they're going to be able to try to do that again. Because remember, right now, this you know everyone you know everyone believes that the Bank of Canada now is going to cut rates by you know by one year from now, rates are going to be 150 basis points lower. Is that the market? Is that what the bet. market's at right now? Yeah, that's what I'm looking at right now. I thought they were. I thought it was. I didn't realize it was that aggressive. I thought it was uh, less than that. So, so again, like this, this stuff doesn't reconcile. Like it just doesn't make sense. So again, so again, the great thing with that is that you know we're we're having a conversation, and you know, hopefully, oh, just, to, uh, just to clarify, just to clarify, you're because you're saying that you know, rich under Rich's you know proposed solution or whatever. Um, that you're going to have, let's say, five percent nominal GDP growth, right? So two percent GDP growth plus 3%. no two percent inflation, two percent inflation plus population growth of three percent. Sorry. Okay, so so five percent nominal GDP, right? And so I guess Keith, what you're saying is okay if you hypothetically had five percent nominal GDP growth. Why on earth would the Bank of Canada be cutting rates by 150 basis points? Yeah, because yeah. that's like in the eyes of the BOC, that's a booming economy. Again, that's what's hard to, and that's what we think about it all the time. You're saying, okay, I, I can see the path where we're where we're going. You know what they, what everyone hopes that we would go towards. The, the probability of success on that path, I think, is a lot lower than what you know everyone is is hoping. And that's the way the conversation should be framed. It's not it has to be this way or or that way or you know blah, 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 you know you put your hand over your your ears and try to avoid it um it, we, we are going down this very odd path that hasn't we haven't experienced it before because again you know i know we keep repeating ourselves you know but it's it's the end of a 40-year cycle and the 40-year cycle has been you know accentuated by lower and lower rates and more and more debt you know it's like the x you know the, the x i think the x cross somewhere rich maybe yep they do yeah yeah something like that yeah um and you know, I, I think ultimately, uh, and again, maybe there is this master plan. You know, the Oasis. You know, they have a song, the Master Plan. Is it, I don't know if it has anything to do with this, but it struck me just then. Um, they wore solid shirts, Steve. Smart. No so, Gallagher. You know, Gallagher I, I just... always had the long black. Wait, I gotta say something. I was gonna time with it. The Master Plan. <laughs> the Master Plan. God damn it! <laughs> I'm not a doctor, Jim. Okay. Actually, I am a doctor. <laughs> Maybe this is where you need CBDC and oh, UB no. at the end of the day. If that's the road we're going down, One, that's conti- where we're going, guys. Can I 
intervene quickly, Rich, because this is gets the point that you get this five percent nominal GDP growth. Um, obviously the bond market has to begin to reprice uh, you know, the yield curve. Um, so bond yields naturally have to push higher. Um, this comes back to the original sort of conversation or hypothesis that you do get some sort of financial repression of it could be the central banks intervening um, or it could be mandates from, let's say, the federal government that says, hey, you know, you're a Canadian pension fund. You have to increase your allocation to government debt, federal federally issued government debt. Uh, to help us support because there's not enough demand to absorb uh, yields or or we need to reprice or we need to push yields lower uh, to sustain this. So that comes back to the whole conversation of financial repression, which is governments stepping in and really trying to manage interest rates. Yeah, I mean, by the way, stage two or three of all this will be the government saying, by the way, uh, you know, fifty percent of your RSP has to buy federal debt. I mean, it's it's one thing to tell pension funds, like to, you know, define benefit plans. You got to do it, but they, they that again, that's the way. You know, it, it goes. Social Security, for example, in, in the U.S., uh, it all goes in the you know the T bonds, right? It's, it's no difference. Wasn't but that's, that, the, that's um... where we could go, and that's where we that's where this could go. You don't want I mean, to hear that, seemed, do you? No that one seems wants like to a hear logical that. Conclusion. I don't want Rich. to hear that. <laughs> Tell me. Well, well I mean, that me, seems sir? like a logical. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not other... saying I'm advocating for it, but it seems like I mean, weren't wasn't was... Freeland out like what we talked about on the show like a month or two ago, but saying hey, you know, maybe we should have Canadian the pension funds having a, a higher mandate to invest in Canadian equities. Canadian that is companies. such a profoundly stupid idea. It's just crazy to me. It's just I don't understand how this person gets up out of bed. I, I just I don't I. I find that, and we've talked about it before, but it is so dumb. But anyway, um, rich, I think the- it's rich. It's one <laughs> leg at a time, just like you, <laughs> just like me. But I think the other thing is, what there's another sort of angle to this sort of, you know, my sort of rose, you know, my rosy tinted glasses version of how this could happen. The other thing is, you know, so one of the things that Pierre Polydev did well in this. Uh, video is that he articulated what Reinhardt and Rogoff, who are two economists from the IMF, sort of outlined in their paper. Can't remember the name of the paper, but they said the four main indicators of the debt crisis are debt buildup, specifically in the private sector, check, asset price inflation, particularly uh, in housing, check, and he also said a, and the thing and falling output. And then a large current account deficit. So let's leave large current account deficit for a second. But the other thing was was the falling output. And that's the other side of this population growth piece, which we've been discussing for two years. It's nice of the CBC to join us, which is if you have falling per capita GDP, what is that? So the other side of having really terrible productivity growth is if you have falling output per capita that's one of the sort of the precursors to a debt crisis. Now that this is can happen because you're having a balance sheet recession and people cannot invest in productive assets. They have to pay for their home. They have to pay, they need to service their debt with every marginal dollar they accumulate. We're seeing that. We're seeing falling output because productivity growth is bad. We're also seeing that in Canada. And we're seeing falling output literally because there are more people and our GDP is stagnant. So our GDP per capita is also stagnant. The thing about that is that's not an appealing place for a country to be. So, you know, you know, in a sense, be careful what you wish for. That product, that population growth jump that we see, Steve, you've made this point before, is like what happens if we get a pullback, a significant pullback from that? All the stories of no housing, shitty jobs, blah, 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 finally leak out. And people say, you know what, I'm going to go to England or China or the US or whatever. And you have a significant retrenchment in that population growth, all of a sudden, these numbers no longer make sense. And the only thing holding up our economy is the current account balance. And they're doing everything in their power to screw that over. (laughs) Who's going to China? Why not? Does that make sense? I mean, like it it just it could it could switch. It could switch. Yeah, 
just bugging you. But you uh, could fit in if you go to Britain because you have the accent already. Yeah, you can fit right. right in. Right, that's right. It makes um, total sense. I mean, on the good on the good news with uh, all the EB mandates, we had uh, U.S. Uh, or sorry, gasoline, uh, gasoline uh, usage demand uh, hit an all time record high in 2023. So, despite uh, Mr. Grilbo's attempts to to get rid of gasoline and mandate electric vehicles across this country. Uh, gasoline demand hit a record high in 2023 and is poised to hit another record in 2024. So that's global, right? Global. Yeah. Glo- global demand for gasoline. Do you have the, the top line figure just to give people sort of an idea of what we do there? Uh, yep, it is. I think I have it too. 2023. So... I think it's like a hundred and something, right? Million barrels. Twenty-seven million barrels a day. How many? Sorry. Twenty-six point nine million barrels a day. No, no, it's got to be higher than that. Are you sure for the U.S. or the global? While consumption would recover this year, it wouldn't reach pre-pandemic levels. The outlook was for a gentle but constant downward trend. In the middle of the year, the IEA projected that gasoline usage would never return to 2019 levels when demand reached 26.7 million barrels a day. Instead, consumption rose to about 26.9 million barrels a day this year. For the U.S. According to the latest IEA figures. Yeah, for the U.S crazy 2024 is poised for another even if small increase to just above 27 million barrels a day so they didn't get the memo rich <laughs> this is this is it says right global demand for gasoline it says really 20, yeah 27 oh. million barrels mm, a day okay all right <laughs> okay i'll just i'll uh Let's leave it there. We'll figure it out. We'll get. We'll figure it out. Anyway, the point is, going up. Rich wants to. Rich wants to split another hair. Let him do it next episode. (laughs) Uh, Rich, it doesn't matter. The number has gone up. That's all that matters. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Okay, so gasoline demand benefits. uh, The world in 2023, there were about 1.1 billion passenger cars in use, up from 850 million a decade earlier. Uh, so even if a growing number of those cars become battery powered, the absolute number of gasoline fueled cars continues to increase a Jesus. trend that will take decades rather than years to reverse. So, yeah. uh, the, the drop in the bucket of, of how many EVs we have here in Canada. But uh, anyways, that's a good place to wrap it up. We don't want to ramble on. Uh, happy New Year to all of our listeners. We appreciate your support here in 2023. We've got a lot planned for 2024, including some fantastic guests coming up uh, in the new year. We've got Jer- Jared Dillion of Street Freak, a fantastic newsletter that I subscribe to. Uh, we've got Doomberg, the green chicken. Oh, sweet. Sweet. Which is going to be an unbelievable interview. Uh, we're really looking forward to that. We've got uh, Tian Yang of Variant Perception, uh, leading you know global macro research company. There's uh, just, just so many good guests coming up down the pipe. We've got some people in the agricultural space coming on, so we're going to get into you know what that means for the Canadian economy and 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 many many more. So uh, we'll uh, look forward to uh, discussing that in the new year, and we'll see you again next week.